Heavenly Father, we are graciously welcomed into this place each week by our brothers and sisters and by the Spirit and by all that you have prepared and all the work you have done to establish this small congregation. And we we join it each Sunday, Father, fondly looking forward to these relationships we have and to the chance to worship in spirit and truth. And Father, we come knowing that you have prepared this day before the foundations of the earth each day, and you have put it together so that it may edify us, it may grow us in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that we would be prepared to serve you in new and better ways. Father, that is the reason this day exists, like every day. And we come, Father, knowing this and understanding it, and therefore preparing our hearts and our minds to receive what you have brought us today in your word. Thank you, Father, for the letter of James, for the faithfulness and for the dedication of that man and for what he did in leading the church in its early days. I pray, Father, the wisdom you imparted to him and you recorded in this letter would be ours as well, that the Spirit would teach each person here, and that through my mouth, Father, you would speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thinking about James, as you know, as the half-brother of Jesus, it reminded me of a story of how siblings often live with one another. There was a little boy who had been an only child up until a point, and then his mom and dad brought another little baby home, brought his brother home. And as little kids are or want to do. They were full of curiosity about their this new person in their life, this new family member. But on this particular day, the baby was not having a good day. It was screaming and crying and couldn't be consoled. And it was, it was just making a racket. And this older brother comes up with his hands over his ears to stop the noise and looks at the baby and then looks at the mom and asks the question that a lot of kids will ask. He says, where did he come from? And the mom, in the tactful way that moms always approach this question she said well he came from heaven to which the brother replied whoa i can see why they threw him out (laughs) and such began a wonderful sibling relationship i'm sure well i come to that story only because i'm thinking as i study the book of james about what it must have been like for this man james to grow up in the home that jesus grew up in Because that's the man we're here to study in the book of James. If you don't know where the book is, by the way, in your Bible, it's really easy to find, actually. Just go to Nahum, and then it's 25 books to the right. (laughs) During Jesus' brief earthly life, the 33 years or so that he lived, he grew up in a home that was probably about as normal as any other Palestinian home in that day. There's no reason to think they lived any kind of different life from the average. His, His dad was a tradesman. He worked with stone for constructing buildings, which was the carpentry of that day. And... He raised his son, same trade. Now, Jesus' father was not his real father, as we know. His earthly father was not the one who conceived him. Jesus, we're told in Luke, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. But, but Joseph, his earthly father, and Mary went on to have normal, natural children after Jesus was born. And those children included a man named Jude, who wrote letter by his name in the New Testament, and another brother. This second brother at least was named Jacob, Jacob in Hebrew. But through a series of translations from Hebrew to Greek and then into Latin and then into English, we end up changing the name Jacob to James. So James's real name in Hebrew was Jacob, the same as Jacob of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jude and James grew up in this home. 
as half-brothers, really, to Jesus, living in Nazareth. And we don't know much about their early lives together. We don't know much about how that family life ran. But we can make some assumptions. I mean, for one thing, we know that Jesus was the spiritual light of the world. He came into the world without sin because he wasn't born of the nature of Adam. He was born through the conception of the Holy Spirit. But his brothers, his brothers were born into the same spiritual darkness that every human being since Adam has been born into, save Christ himself. And so if you have in your family the son who, uh, of God, who is the spiritual light of the world, mixing with two other sons who are, well, just normal boys, then you know there's friction. What kind of friction do these two groups, Christ on the one hand and the earthly brothers Jude and James, what kind of friction exists between light and darkness? It would have been an interesting family situation, to be sure. I'm sure there was some sibling love and affection and rivalry and a whole lot of other stuff as well. Around A.D. 26, Jesus begins his earthly ministry with the baptism by John the Baptist. And he begins teaching first in his neighborhood, basically, in the Galilee, where Nazareth is. You remember all this, I'm sure, from our Luke study. And he was first making his declaration as the Messiah in a synagogue in Nazareth. Do you remember reading out of the scroll of Isaiah? He declared that these things have been fulfilled in your hearing. And it's likely that as Jewish men, Jude and James, good Jewish boys in the city of Nazareth, where do you think they would have been on the Sabbath? Probably in the synagogue, right? With Jesus. And it stands to reason they were probably in the audience as they saw their older brother proceed to grab the scroll and sit in the Moses seat, in the seat of teaching, and proclaim himself to be Messiah in their very presence. Now, we all have brothers or sisters that think too much of themselves from time to time, but can you imagine what James and Jude were thinking? Well, I can tell you what they weren't thinking. They weren't thinking, yes, he's the Messiah. How do I know that? Because in the Gospel of John, in chapter 7, we hear this. Verse 2, Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, we'll show yourself to the world. And then John adds, For not even his brothers were believing in him. Not even his brothers. So, in that quick passage, Jesus' brothers advise him, hey, you want people to think you're the Messiah? You want to be known publicly? Well, you've got to stop hanging around here in the backwater part of Judea, up here in Nazareth. Nobody's going to pay any attention to you here. You need to go down to the big city. Go down to Jerusalem. If you really want people to think something of you, you need to go down there. In other words, they viewed it simply as a politicking game, as a way of gaining publicity. They did not understand who he truly was. And because they didn't believe his claims... They did not follow him in his earthly life. It was only after Jesus' death and resurrection that he appeared to James, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. And by that appearing, Jesus brought James to faith after the resurrection. And at that moment, James became an apostle and an early leader in the church, and he led the church from Jerusalem. And interestingly, when he wrote about himself, he never again referenced himself as the earthly brother of Jesus. He no longer held himself to that title or made any allusion to it at all. He only identified himself by his spiritual association to his former 
half-brother. He would always call himself the bondservant of Christ the Lord. He no longer saw himself by his fleshly association. That's the man we're studying here, James. Look at his book with me if you have your Bible open. And let's begin with verse 1. The simple greeting that James opens his letter to. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then to his audience, he says, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. You notice, as I said, James identifies himself here as just the bondservant. And then he writes to the twelve tribes who are living dispersed abroad. Let's take just a moment to understand who these people are, because in understanding who he writes to, we have the opportunity to understand why and what he writes about. The letter of James is likely the earliest written scripture of the New Testament. This letter was probably written as early as A.D. 45, so we're talking here just 12 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, which would mean it was written before Paul began any of his missionary journeys, before Paul wrote any of his letters, before even the Gospels were written. This letter forms the very first scripture of the New Testament. And it was written before the temple was destroyed, before the Jews had stopped sacrificing in their temple, before, for the most part, before much persecution had broke out. It was simply at the beginnings of that. And it was written at a time when the church was largely made up of Jews. It was almost exclusively a Jewish church. There were some pockets of Gentile believers, of course. But you're talking about a man who is a Jew living in Jerusalem, speaking about his Jewish Messiah to a Jewish audience. And with that comes some unique qualities to the letter. It's considered one of the five Jewish epistles. You have James, Hebrews, First and Second Peter, and Jude, written to Jewish believers principally. Some were written to the Jews who were in the land. Some were written to the Jews who had already left the land and gone outside Judea. This one, he says, is written to the twelve tribes, meaning the Jewish nation, who are dispersed abroad, who have left the land of Palestine and are living in the diaspora, which would include anyone who's outside the land of Jerusalem, of, of Israel proper, is considered abroad, dispersed. That's any Jew not living in the land. That was his principal audience. In that day, a Jew who confessed Christ as their Messiah was particularly susceptible to persecution. They were going to be ostracized from their Jewish brethren. They were going to be kicked out of the synagogue. They were going to be prohibited from participating in the festivals and the feasts. And how ironic was that? Because these Jews who had come to know the Lord wanted nothing more than to celebrate him in those traditions. But they were prohibited from doing so in many cases. And James himself eventually became a victim of that very persecution. You remember from our study of Luke that it was impossible for the Jewish leaders to bring about the death penalty without the Romans approving it and allowing it. But there came a point in James's life when the procurator of Judea died and his replacement took about a year and a half to come down from Rome and assume his seat of power in Judea. During that year and a half gap, it was a little bit like the Wild West. There wasn't clear uh, authority established under Rome. And during that time, the high priest, the son of Annas, who was the one who conducted the trial of Jesus, his son was high priest at that point. He accused James of violating the law and stirred up a crowd against him and they stoned him to death during that window of opportunity. And so James came under that same persecution and it was the cause of his death. Looking at the epistle itself, this man is going to write basically a sermon, a five chapter sermon. And each chapter offers a different point. It's very easy to find the outline of James. It's one chapter per point. And he's writing 
to Jewish believers who have come out of Jewish traditions and out of Jewish law. And you'll notice as one of the features of this letter, there's almost no Christian theology. There's almost no Christian doctrine in this letter. It doesn't speak about uh, the origin of faith. It doesn't speak about the content of faith. It speaks instead about the consequences of faith. This is an intensely practical letter. This is a letter written by a man to a group of people who he knew were already believers. What he was concerned about was, are they living the life that a believer should live? And in some cases, his concern was whether their traditions in Jewish life and custom were still complicating their life and and inhibiting their Christian walk. But then in other cases, he was simply looking at the sin nature of men and women, the natural things we all do wrong but we shouldn't do, having come to faith. Now, the first theme of the book is established quickly. Chapter 1 is one theme, one point in the book. And in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, you're going to see the first theme explained. He says in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Does that verse ring bells? How many times have we heard that verse? If we're a student of Scripture, if we've been in the church very long at all, somebody has quoted us that verse. Usually, right after we told them about a trial. Oh, you're going through a trial? Well, consider it all joy. Well, thank you very much. Have a nice day yourself. Isn't that how it's often used? Now, that's well-meaning and it's well-intentioned. But until we understand what James is saying, that doesn't work, does it? Just saying the words, consider it all joy, yeah, I I hear what you're saying, Steve, but (laughs) yeah, it doesn't work that way. That's the first thing. The proper Christian attitude and persistence when experiencing trials. The proper attitude and the proper persistence. The Greek language here in verses 2 through 4 is incredibly important to understanding the first chapter, to getting to the details of it, especially in this first chapter. Look at the end of the first verse, or the second verse, where he says, encounter various trials. The word encounter Perpito in the Greek, it means to fall into something. It doesn't mean to fall in as in to yield to something. It's not the same thing as falling into sin, where you're yielding to something. That's not what he's saying. It's in the sense of coming upon something, and you can see it most clearly when that same word in the Greek is used in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And just one verse, listen, Jesus in verse 30 of chapter 10 Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. Fell. That's the same word in the Greek. It means to just come upon something. One minute you're fine, the next minute, bam, something happens. That's what encounter means when he's talking about encountering trials. The part of the phrase various trials, various trials, that's the most important part of the entire chapter. Or at least it is to understanding it. Various trials. Trials. It's a very interesting choice of words in the Greek. And you're going to see a lot of different interpretations of these words because they're so unique. It literally means, if I was to translate it most literally into English, it means many colored temptations or varied experiments or tests. The sense here is of circumstances that can take many different forms and they are brought about for a divine purpose as a test or as an experiment. That's the sense of it in the Greek. Now, by trials, you could ask a question. You could say to yourself, well, is James talking here about 
the kind of trials like Christians being persecuted or hated or receiving unfair treatment because of our faith, those kinds of intense moments that come upon us because we're a Christian, is that what James is talking about when he says various trials? And the answer is yes, because that's exactly what the Jews were beginning to experience in their walk, the Jewish Christians of his day. But is James also talking about the ordinary difficulties of life? Is he also talking about illnesses and financial difficulties and relationship struggles and unemployment or addictions or phobias? Is that the kind of stuff he's talking about too? Yes. He's talking about all that stuff. He's talking about all colors of trials and temptations, the myriad of things that come upon a believer in our life, problems we face, urges we resist, Desires we have to control. All of that. You list something that is a problem in your life with respect to your Christian walk, it's included. Whether it comes upon you because you're a Christian or whether it just seems to be random, they're all included. But now, because of our faith, we are called to respond differently to those circumstances than we would have otherwise. So when James uses words like come upon us or experiment or test, He's not just describing the quality, the nature of these trials. Do you understand he's also indicating the origin? He's suggesting clearly who is bringing these things upon us. And of course, the who is God. They all originate in God. He brings everything upon us. There is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as coincidence. There isn't the God-sized intervention that happens once in a while and the non-God-sized interventions that happen once in a while. Charles Spurgeon, eminent preacher of the 19th century, he put it this way, and I've never heard it put any better than this, talking about the degree to which God controls what happens in our life. Spurgeon says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in heavens. And the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. I think he's absolutely right. And even if you think about it just logically, if you start trying to draw lines between the things God controls and the things God doesn't control, you create a logical conundrum in just a moment. Because those little things add up. And eventually they add up to big things. And eventually you have to ask yourself, well, if he isn't controlling the little things, how can he control the big things? How do you separate them? And the Bible says nothing is outside of God's control. He's in charge of it all. So it's that understanding, knowing that fact, is what James is appealing to here in helping us understand that God guides our circumstances and he brings trials upon us and he brings tests and experiments. And James wants us to know that so that we can obey his command here, which is to consider those things Joy. He commands us to count them as joy. Now, the word consider, going back to the Greek here for a moment, the word consider, or in some of your Bibles it probably says count it all as joy. That word means to decide or judge something. Make a decision in your head about something. What he's saying is our attitude, 
about all that happens to us is not something outside our control. It is a product of our will, of our judgments, of our knowledge about what's going on. We have a choice in how we view our circumstances. Now, you may have heard psychologists tell you this. You may have heard teachers or parents tell you this. You may have heard other pastors tell you this. And the Bible's telling you, and James is telling you, when we look at our circumstances, we have a choice about how we are going to respond to them in our walk as a Christian. Now, the choice James says we should make is we count it all as joy. We count it as joy. The word in Greek for joy here is chara, and it means the supreme highest level of joy possible. He's not even being equivocal about it. He's saying you have to treat a trial or a test as the best thing that ever happened to you. Think about our options for a moment. You can face a trial with anger. You, you could face a trial with sorrow or with fear. But he says if you are a Christian, those options are no longer available to you. By your own will, by your own decision-making and judgment, you are to say, I am not going to be fearful, sorrowful, or angry about a trial. I'm going to look upon it in the right way. I'm going to be joyful about it. And James says we don't come to this naturally. We come to it as a result of knowledge. Look at verse 2. He says, we can know that our circumstances were ordained by the Lord himself as a test, as an experiment, as the word used in Greek implies, to see how we will respond. In high school, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school, and the professor I had for English was a Christian brother, an old-school kind of English teacher. And this is how he tested. He didn't have regular tests. There were no planned tests in the whole semester. All his tests were surprised. You had no idea when you were going to be tested the whole time. You are going to have so many of them before the semester's out, but they were all surprise tests. So you never knew. Never knew when you were going to have a test. And when he announced that today was the day we were having a test, that was a trial. By any definition, you were in the middle of a trial because in many cases you may not be prepared. Now, if you were prepared for that test, if I had approached that moment prepared, then the whole thing felt very differently. Even though it was a surprise, I was fine with it. In fact, I kind of looked forward to it because I was prepared. Some of the guys in the class probably weren't, and he graded on the curve. So I was okay. I, I would know instinctively I'm going to pass this test. I know I'm likely to receive a good grade. And so I could see this test, or you could define it as a trial. I could see it as joy. I could actually be enthusiastic about it. Because why? Because I had knowledge that had me prepared to face it. And so for me, the test was a good thing. Now, on the other hand, if my knowledge was lacking, I would respond to the trial with what you would expect. Worry, despair, angst, right? And then, as a result, I usually got a poor grade. What happens when you don't do well on a test? In many cases, you have to do it again. If you're lucky, you get a chance to do it again. You get another shot. That's the nature of life. James says our approach to the trials of life that we have in walking with the Lord should follow a similar principle. The same one we already follow in school. The more we understand about God, the more godly wisdom we have, the more we know about how to face trials in life, the better prepared we are. And when those tests and those trials are assigned to us by God, he is grading us. We are receiving an eternal grade each time he puts a trial or a test in our path and waits to see how we respond to it. That's what he's saying here. That's what the word experiment implies. And the better prepared we are when we face those trials, the better we're going to do. Look what he says in verses 3 and 4. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says the key to being joyful in a trial is what you know. It's in your knowing. It's in what you understand. The Greek word here is gnosko, and it means literally to perceive properly, to take stock of, what you understand, of what's going on around you and see it properly, understand it properly. So then, if that's the formula, are we seeing our trials in life the right way? Do we understand them the right way? You remember the story I told you here at least some point, I'm sure, in the past about how my car was stolen out of my garage? You know, as I stood out in my street in front of my house and I watched this car drive away with the thief behind the wheel, I remember at the time distinctly, it was in my head, so strong I can still remember it, I remember thinking, what is God doing here to prepare me? Now, I'm not saying that comes natural. I'm not some holier-than-thou you know, guy that takes everything in life in stride. I have my days, too, that are less than admirable. But for some reason, in the midst of that particular moment, what God was preparing for me was a test, and I was passing that test, as far as I can tell. Because I could have been angry. I could have screamed and yelled at the guy. I could have been despondent. I could have got my other car and chased him. Not that the thought didn't cross my mind, but I didn't do it. I could have just moped around the house. I mean, who knows what I could have done? What would you have done? What would any of us have done normally? But no, I stood there and I knew God was in control. That thought was in my head. And I knew he had allowed that person to take my car. I knew he had sent that person to my house to take my car. Now, the guy didn't know that, of course. But God doesn't need us to know what he's doing in order for him to use us. I knew that had happened. And because I knew that God was doing this, how could I be angry? How can I take that out on somebody else? The only right response with my knowledge, knowing what God is controlled, knowing he had sent this as a test, the only proper way to pass that test was to make sure that in my response to it, my faith was on display and not my flesh. That's it. That's the test. That knowledge in that event changed the way I responded and it allowed me to act differently with the Spirit's power to bring it about. Why was I joyful? And there was a sense of joy, not, not in the sense of, yippee, my car has been stolen. No one does that. But in the sense of, this is cool. Why is it cool? Because this has never happened to me before. This is really interesting. God's taken a car from me this way. That's really odd. Why would he go to so much effort? He could just send a letter. I could have <laughs> donated it. I mean, I know that's a bit silly, but honestly, folks, when you're in the middle of one of those moments, strange things go through your head and God was in control and he brought those thoughts to mind. And I was joyful because I knew I was passing a test. I was reacting differently than the old man would have done a few years earlier. I missed the car. I loved the car. I didn't want the car to be gone, but it didn't matter as much as passing God's test in that moment. The enemy had taken his best shot at me and God had allowed it and I wasn't letting my flesh drive my response, and I could be joyful because I knew God was preparing me in far greater ways through that experience. Jesus tells us exactly the same thing regarding tests and trials when he spoke in Matthew. Look at what Jesus says about how God is measuring us when we respond to these tests and trials. It's in Matthew 5.11. You can just listen and write it down and see it later if you'd like. It's 5.11 through 12. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you, and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's a kind of trial he's talking about. He's not talking about stolen cars, I realize. But Jesus says, when you find persecution coming upon you, 
and that persecution is intended to bring you down because of who you are in Christ, just understand there is a reward for those who have gone through that circumstance. And I believe it's implied that that reward is contingent to some degree on how you respond, whether you strike back against it or whether you acknowledge God in control. And receiving these tests is for the sake of heavenly reward. Have you ever considered that? Uh, And I don't have to take a poll in here as to who has suffered a trial. That's really part and parcel of the human life on earth, right? So we're all in this together. We've all gone through trials. We are going through them now in many cases. Have you ever considered that every time we suffer through one of those trials, there's something eternal at stake? Just like that test that I talked about in English class. There is a grade of sorts being assigned by the Lord to us each time we come through a trial. Sometimes we get A's and sometimes we get F's. And other times something in between, right? And when we face trials successfully, we earn His favor. And for our own sake in this life, James says, we learn endurance. Endurance. The word in Greek is hupomone, and it, it just means patience, steadfast patience, steadfastness in the face of something, not being a wavering sort. James is talking about consistency here in our Christian character and attitude. Are you the kind of person that I can tell when you're having a bad day? You've got days when everyone knows you're on cloud nine, and then you've got days when you're down in the dumps. Can others tell that about you? Can your spouse tell that about you? Based on what James says, if your attitude and your countenance varies with your circumstances, you're happy when life is good, but when a trial comes, you're not happy. If that's who you are, according to James, that says that we're not yet spiritually mature because we're too easily changed by our circumstances such that we have forgotten who's bringing them and why. We're unable to look at the joyful moments, even in tragedy, understanding God at work. That is hard. That is spiritually mature responses. You don't get that easily. You only get it with time. If that describes us, then perhaps we haven't been passing those tests the way we're supposed to. And what happens if we don't pass a test? Well, based on my experience, God brings them again. All right, Steve, not so good with that one. Try this one. Not so good with that one either. I got more. Try this one. And he does it because he loves us. Because the opportunity of a test is one for eternal reward. James says in verse 4, our endurance through trials or this consistent patient attitude and response that we're supposed to have to difficulties will have a perfect result. Here's another case where the Greek is more informative than the English. The word is telelos, and it means complete, but it's actually the word mature. It will have its maturing result. It will produce maturity. Do you want to reach a a point of spiritual maturity? I mean, if you understand what it means to be spiritually mature, the answer to that question should be easy. Do you yearn to reflect Christ in your life? Do you wish you could be one of those men or women that you've seen or met that every time you look at them, you think, gosh, that is just the most godly person I know. Is that the person you want to be? James says the road to that kind of maturity is filled with trials and tests. Let me guess, you're like me. You want the maturity, but maybe not the tests. It doesn't work that way. It's like taking the English class without the tests. You you, you could try it, I guess, but truthfully, how much would you learn in a class where you're told up front, there's no tests in this class? How much work do you put into learning? How hard is that class? I mean, we all understand how that works in real life. Why would we expect our perfect Father in Heaven to do it any differently? James says we are to seek to a point where we lack nothing 
in the area of spiritual maturity. That's what he means by perfect and complete. It's in the context of spiritual maturity. If anyone has ever taken you to these verses and said, look, you just have to do what James is saying here and you won't have anything you need. You'll, you'll lack nothing. Well, that's taking these verses out of context because he's not talking about our material needs. He's talking about spiritual maturity, being blessed as a result of our Christian walk. Now, what do you think the Lord will do with a Christian who lacks spiritual maturity? Based on what we hear James teaching, if we're not at that point of perfect maturity yet, what do you think God is going to do if his desire is to bring us to spiritual maturity? The only logical conclusion is he brings trials. Now, doesn't that work against what we're hearing preached in many churches these days? What we hear preached erroneously in many places is when God is happy with you, your life will be good. And if you're having trials and tests and downfalls in your life, well, you're doing something wrong. You're not praying enough. You're not giving money to the church enough. You're not going to church enough. You're not doing something, because if you had been doing everything right, obviously these bad things wouldn't be happening to you, would they? Whoever says that doesn't know the Bible. And not just because of what we're reading in James. You could find a hundred places to go that prove that thought wrong. But James says it clearly. There is a desire to be joyful under those circumstances because we realize it's a method to getting us where we need to be in spiritual maturity. It's the way God grows us. These trials come from God like quizzes or tests in a class, and we are supposed to face them so that we can excel in them, not despair over them. But the key is our knowledge. Look at the last verse for today, verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, this is in the context of the knowledge that lets us be joyful under trials. That kind of knowledge. If you're not there yet, if we're not there, I see, I hear what you're saying, it all makes perfect sense, but let me tell you, it ain't working for me. I don't have that knowledge. I'm not there. I can't seem to face my trials joyfully. I just go back to my old ways. All right? James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and that's the issue here, wisdom to face trials, he says, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James acknowledges, we as believers, we lack wisdom sometimes. We don't have all that we need to face these trials. He he acknowledges that. And just as when I lacked the wisdom to pass those surprise English tests from time to time, I didn't always know what I was supposed to know. God says in the spiritual context that our Father in Heaven is ready and willing to provide us with the answers to the tests that we face if we just ask Him. He will answer our request for wisdom in the face of trials, in the face of of, of these, these tests. And James says he'll do it without reproach. Now that word in Greek, the word reproach as it's captured in Greek, it means casting an insult. So when we go to the Father and say, look, I'm, I, my car has just been stolen, or my, my wife is sick, or I've lost my job, and I'm trying to feel joyful about this, but I've got to tell you, Lord, right now, don't feel so much joy. I'm coming to you for the wisdom that it takes to see this circumstance joyfully. James says, number one, you don't have to inquire as to his will, meaning you don't have to ask, will he let me know this? James says that is a prayer God will always answer yes, period. He will always give you the wisdom you ask to face a trial joyfully. Here's another verse taken out of context, right? I can ask God of anything as long as I ask without wavering. God's going to give me whatever I ask for. No, this is in the context of wisdom to face trials. That's it. But if I'm asking him for the wisdom to face a trial joyfully, he will always give it to me. You know, that's one difference between God and my English professor, right? If I had stopped in the middle of one of those surprise English tests back in high school and I had asked my instructor for the knowledge that I needed to pass that test, 
I can tell you what I would have learned. I would have learned that I'll never do that again. Because my request would have undoubtedly been met with reproach. A casting of insults. Not with our Father in heaven. Considering all that God has prepared to bring us for the sake of spiritual maturity, would you not also expect Him to equip us for that very circumstance? That's the point, to pass, not to fail. So let's sum up all that He's saying here as we finish our Father's Day. Let's line it out, because I'll tell you, as you leave this room, there's a good chance before this day's over, you're hitting a trial. The Father wants His children to grow in spiritual maturity. He wants that result. Because that growth is going to be measured ultimately for the sake of of eternal reward. He is going to look at us on our last day as we stand before him in judgment, and he's going to assess how much we matured, how much we served him, how well we did with what he gave us. And that measurement is what we're working for, the best score on that day. And so James says trials and tests and experiments will come come upon us by God's hand, and he'll bring us these trials not to harm us, but to develop within us endurance, and patience and steadfastness in our walk, which over time is spiritual maturity. The ability to stay even keeled, joyful under any circumstances. That's how Paul could say as he was in prison, I count everything joy. How can you do that, Paul? Because of a spiritually mature understanding of what God was at work doing. And he looked forward to what he was going to receive in the kingdom because of how he did what he did here. And so his circumstances were all good for him. They were all leading to a good result. And then finally, James says, these tests are open book tests. They're open book. God is willing to give us the answers. To give us the wisdom, we need to pass the test with flying colors. But did you notice he says that when we recognize we need that knowledge, we are to ask God. I think that's important. He didn't say ask Oprah. He didn't say ask the well-meaning Christian counselor. He didn't say ask your your brother and sister in the Lord. He didn't say go get the latest Christian bestseller. I mean, we do those things and sometimes they're helpful, but they're not a replacement for asking God. And if we go to those other sources, there's no guarantee he's going to give us the wisdom we look for in those other ways because the only place he says he will always give us what we want is from himself, which would mean to petition him in prayer or to seek Him in His Word, but in either case, to seek His direct wisdom on how to respond to some specific circumstance. If we do that, He says, He will tell us. Now, understand, He's not saying He's taking the test away. This isn't the case of you saying, God, take this test away, and He's always going to do it. No, the answer, or the, 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 the thing James promised was, He'll give you the way to face it, in joy, because that's the test of spiritual maturity. Tests were opportunities to succeed and grow. When we come back next week, we're going to pick up from there, looking at how he develops out the thought of trial next week. But I don't think we need to study the rest of this chapter before we're able to apply what we've just learned. I would love to hear from each of you next week, just in passing, as we come back together, Steve, you know, I had a trial. I had this test. God brought this thing upon me. And you know what? I asked him for wisdom. Here's what he told me, and it it gave me the ability to face it differently. I'd love to have a testimony from anyone and everyone on that because it would just go to prove God at work through His Word. See if God doesn't give you that opportunity. I'll bet you there's a surprise test planned this week. Let's go to Lord in prayer and enjoy our Father's Day. Heavenly Father, thank You, Father, for the patience this morning as we begin a a new study. Thank You for the conviction, Father, the reminder in Your Word that We are seeking spiritual maturity, but still far 
are far from it on many days. And your word, Father, is before us to encourage us along that walk. We pray, Father, that as we have heard this morning in James's letter, that we would have the, the wherewithal and, and the, the courage and boldness to go before you, requesting the wisdom you offer so that we may face our trials in a different way. Because, Father, we rest on the promises you've put in your word, promises to answer that prayer and to tell us how we are to face those trials with joy. And I do pray, Father, that we would see each one of these tests and trials as an opportunity to pass, to add glory to your name, as a way to reflect Christ to a lost and dying world. I pray, Father, you would give us those opportunities and that we would be prepared to face them. Thank you, Father, for Oak Hill Bible Church and for the men and women who serve here and who come each week to praise your name. Bring us back next week, if it be your will, continue to grow us and to reach our community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.